Welcome to the Business Leader Podcast. My name is Serena, and today our guest is an ex-platoon commander who founded a talent incubator to help war veterans break into the tech sector. With You With Me has now expanded to find work for neurodivergent communities, gender diverse people, military spouses, and indigenous populations. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to receive the latest episodes. We'd love to hear your feedback. Email questions at businessleader.co.uk to get in touch. And now it's time to welcome Tom Moore to the podcast. Thanks for letting me come on. I would love to find out more about your background and sort of your upbringing. What was that like? Whereabouts did you grow up? My life is sort of um, always shifting between two stages. One is overwhelming catastrophe and uh, absolute drive to fight injustice. So uh, my family is actually from York originally, served for about 300 years uh, in the military, 150 years in the British military, and then 150 years in the Australian military. Uh, and everyone in my family's had to be a soldier, a rifleman, the basic combat soldier. We've never really done anything other than being you know, on my mum's side and, and being warriors. So I grew up in a place uh, in Sydney, Australia, that was pretty similar to the East End of London. Um, and I did some pretty stupid things growing up. When I did a basic skills test at a very young age, you do an aptitude assessment. And um, I got in the bottom quarter percent of the state when I was, I think, nine years old. And, and they told me there was something wrong with me. So uh, ever since then, I, I sort of realized that I, I don't really fit in too much and that I shouldn't really pay attention to really what anyone says. So I found myself getting really, really obsessed with this concept of injustice. And although I was sort of growing up and being a bit of a knucklehead and breaking rules and, and doing things that people that don't fit into society fit in when you're from a low socioeconomic area, um, I also found myself beating up bullies. By the time I was 18, I realized that I was a bit of a monster and you know I'm a big person with a big mouth and I should just join the army like the rest of my family have done for 300 years. And it's a place where you can be a monster, but you can act fortuitously. And number two, everyone in my family has been a warrior and you get better Christmas presents if you're a warrior. So I, I, I'm going to go do that. So I joined the Australian army at 18 as a rifleman. Uh, and yeah, that that's sort of how I grew up, where I grew up. And, and I spent um, eight years in the army including at 22. Um, I became an army officer around 21 after being a soldier. Um, went through Australia's version of Sandhurst being Duntroon uh, and led a 60-man combat team in Afghanistan at, at 22. Uh, and then, unfortunately, I was significantly injured. And, and at 26, I found myself without a job, no one wanting to hire me and back home with sort of nowhere to go. So that was sort of my, I would say, my second catastrophic failure. So you say that when you were younger, you felt like you didn't fit into society. Was that the reason you went into the army or would you say it was more your family history of service? Uh, it's, a, it's a good question. Um, so when people tell you for a long time there's something wrong with you, uh, you sort of stop listening to what's right with you as well. Because in order to deal with insults, you, you can't take compliments. It's the same part of uh, I guess, social development engagement, but it's also the same part of your personality, uh, which is neuroticism. Your ability to receive negative emotion is directly correlated to positive. So if you just turn that off, you find yourself quite isolated from society. And, and you know, I remember every Christmas growing up when I'm, I was 12 and 
seeing how different it was for the veterans in my family that had served in Vietnam, Korea, World War II, uh, and then their sons that were fighting in Afghanistan and Iraq, how much closer they were than everyone else. And they were all really sort of different, you know, highly disagreeable, very open to new experiences, always going into the unknown. Didn't matter if they were male or female. We have a very much a, a warrior culture, you know. And then I saw the other side of my family, which uh, most of them were teachers. And my dad was the first one to be a businessman and, and get himself out of poverty uh, and lift his whole family out of poverty. And, and, I, and I saw my sisters a lot like my father. So I didn't really fit in there. Um, so uh, for me, joining the army gave me a path that was historic that took people like me that weren't perfect and you know fundamentally enter an esoteric society which puts mission and other people before your own gain and although i was a bit rough around the edges and i like to fight it looks like i could join a club but also keep fighting which is the only thing i seem to be good at and it wasn't just from a perspective of it was a way to get out but it was a way to join my own family's tribe as well as the uh, one that existed in uniform, which it does exist. How did your family feel when you did join the army? <laughs> well, my dad didn't talk to me for two years. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> my mum was the only one in the family that hadn't served and all of her brothers had served. And she's seen how, I guess, yes, traumatic their lives were after service. They ended up becoming entrepreneurs, which is quite interesting. But no, people didn't want me to do it. That's why I did my degree at night in business. Um, so uh, yeah, it was very hard for people to see it. And then I remember I had an opportunity to go to Google Australia or this is at the end of my degree or go to Duntroon. And, you know, Google Australia was maybe about a hundred thousand USD a year salary and, and Duntroon was probably thirty five thousand. And my my father who spent, you know, growing up in poverty, used to sell cigarettes door to door, used to run a pizza hut and a KFC at the same time, and then never finished school, never finished university, ended up making a company billions of dollars by the time I was eighteen. So I, you know, I never saw any of that wealth, but my little sister is very different to me and my older sister because she grew up in a very different society to us. But um, he was fundamentally annoyed because he'd done all this thing to get his family out of it and his son's just going to fight wars and be like his uncles. Uh, but I'm not really someone that ever listens to when someone tells them to do something. I'm a fundamental believer in choice. So it didn't stop me, but you know, they weren't supportive at all. There's often this idea that you should live up to something that your parents sort of create for you which which isn't always necessarily the right thing for yourself at a specific time what was your what was your experience like in the army did you enjoy it or what was that like <laughs> um but just yeah I, I agree with your point i'm a big believer in that you get to a certain age you treat your parents like a peer and it actually creates a, a more successful relationship with them which means you don't worry about what they think of everything you do um and I'm not doing it so they feel proud of you. I'm doing it for myself. It's something that I believe in. Uh, so then I joined the army. And I probably should have listened to my parents because uh, <laughs> <laughs> on one side of my family, they're extremely neurodivergent, which is my father's side. I have about 50 first cousins on each side. Like we're a classic Irish Australian family that's grown up in the country and you know, they come from convicts. So there's a lot of people. Uh, and we have a high amount of people that have got autism and uh, Asperger's on one side of the family. And one of the main reasons I got such a bad test result is I suffered from dyslexia. So the way the army teaches you is they show you how to do something, then you got to do it. That's a kinesthetic learning style. It's what makes athletes really good. And it's very similar. Most people that join the army, like 72% have a kinesthetic learning style. I do not. 
I have to talk about things in order to understand how they work because I can't read them. My brain doesn't want to do it that way. So here's me at recruit school. And if you've ever seen a military movie, asking a question all the time. And they don't like questions. I remember ringing my mum about it. I'm like, maybe I shouldn't do this. Maybe I'm not really like your brothers. And I really struggled to get through the initial recruit training. I was what we call a heat seeker. Just asking for trouble all the time. But by the time I got into the, the I would say, the warrior stage of the training, where you, you learn how to live off the land, you learn how to stay alive, you understand how to hunt people. I was extremely good at it because the things that made my brain have really high abstract reasoning or really high fluid intelligence that don't benefit from a learning model of, we'll show you how to do something, you got to do it, are extremely valuable when you're hunting someone. So uh, the ability to see things different in the terrain, the understanding how things connect across systems, all of these things are very, very valuable uh, in a modern military environment. And so by about day 60, although I'd copped 60 days of pain, I realized that I could be a pretty average soldier, but I could still be a soldier. And, you know, I liked being a soldier. It's a great job. It teaches you responsibility over advocacy. The way the military teaches responsibility is you, as a team, you lose all of your privileges, the ability to talk, the ability to move, the ability to decide what you do for the rest of your day. Uh, And that might not sound like a lot, but it is. And as a team, you've got to earn those privileges back by working with each other. Uh, And everyone thinks that that's a little bit silly, but I don't think it is because what it does is it teaches you that if you want rights and if you want privileges, then someone has to be responsible for them and you're responsible for others. So, you know, the army taught me that and and that was the the best bit about being a soldier. At at a very young age, you could see that you could be responsible for something bigger than just yourself. But I also hated taking orders. My family landed at Gallipoli in World War I, um, fought through the whole World War in World War II, one of my pop's first cousins won the Victoria Cross. So I've got all of these guys and girls that did these brave things. But their promotion history is like operator, team leader, manager, back to operator. Uh, we don't like rules. So I went, well, why don't I be an officer then? And maybe I could do it better because I can't handle being told rules, but maybe I could I could be a better one. So I, I, I went to Duntroon, found that whole experience wildly traumatic because most people that their army officers come from a professional family or a country background. They don't come from being a soldier. They come from outside. And, you know, I found myself isolated again. And I was like, well, you know, I'm just going to outwork all of you. Uh, and then I went on to lead 60 young men and women in Afghanistan at 22. Most of them were older than me. And it was the best job I've ever had. And it always will be. Fundamentally, the juice was worse than the squeeze. But I would tell you that I'm an average soldier and an average officer. Uh, and I was very lucky to have a, a very capable team in Afghanistan that outrun their potential. So going from that, what happened next? You know, you obviously stopped being in the army and now you've founded your own business. So so what were the series of events that happened after that? Um, an extremely traumatic one. So I was told at 25 I'd never be able to walk again. And, you know, I'd only just started being a warrior. It's all I wanted to do. Um, so my whole brand identity went away. You know, you start to ask your question, what are my uncles and aunties going to think? What are my friends going to think? I, I can't do what I want to do. And I'm not really good at anything else. So I did what every arrogant young person does, which is, there's no way I'm not going to walk again. I'll beat this. And I went through 12 months of rehabilitation, paid for stem cell myself, walked again, ran again, and was getting ready to deploy to Iraq. And then um, when I put all the weight on, so like all the body armor and stuff you see soldiers wear, I would just collapse under the weight. So the army just said, that's enough. Like you've been able to come back from something that you shouldn't have been able to come back from. And it's astronomical, but you can't be a warrior. I reckon I drank for 90 days straight and tried to kill myself three times. So I was medically discharged from the military at 26. 
nowhere to go, nowhere to live, no job, no identity. Um, and one of the interesting things about when you lose your identity, you start to realize that it wasn't that much anyway. The husk of who you are is quite small and you know you start to speak to yourself a lot. And one of the big things about you, you understand, you start to say a lot of things that you don't believe. Uh, so I stopped talking really and I couldn't figure out where to go. And after about sort of 90 days of drinking, I was like, well, this isn't, this is quite boring. Uh, so I started to apply for jobs and I applied for 200 jobs and got 15 interviews and no one wanted to hire me. And in one interview, I was going for a security guard position. My last job in the army was managing 100 and so people uh, in a security guard position, about one quarter of the salary. And the young recruiter at 24, she's like, you don't have any financial sector security experience. And I was like, what? I go, that's quite interesting. Uh, so I sort of just stumble upon that maybe the way we look at people and their potential and getting them involved in the labor market isn't working. And so I started to ask her a few questions. I was like, huh, so why do you want to hire veterans then? And she said, well, they're always on time and they're disciplined. So I'm like, well, okay. So you know, when you're doing your taxes and you pick an accountant, do you pick an accountant that's got the best return on investment and you've seen it? Or do you pick the one that's the most boring? Because apparently the most boring one could have the biggest return on investment because that's the same way you're picking us. Uh, and I don't really understand this subjective speculative model that you're running. So I looked into it further and I just noticed that in Australia at the time, there was a veteran unemployment rate of 30.2%. Around 5,000 veterans leave a year, 30% are going on unemployment. Average age is 26. Most of them have got a degree. So what the hell is going on there? And then we looked at a few other things. Between 21 to 25 years old, one in four people were getting diagnosed with depression. And that's really interesting in a society that's well-developed like Australia. And then we looked into other data, like it takes 4.9 years for someone with a bachelor's degree to get a job worthy of a salary. Okay, that's really interesting. So people are paying a lot for education and not getting work, which is making them upset. And then we looked into underemployment and the federal bank in Australia and, and the one in the US and the one here all track underemployment based off utilization of people going on casual rates and working set amount of hours based off their tax. And so it's pretty accurate when just based off utilization of hourly work and you know, 39% of the population was underemployed. So we just went, okay, well, this is annoying. And then when we looked at the systems that managed recruitment, the main item that still used or the main piece of technology was the resume or the CV which was invented by Leonardo da Vinci in 1492. And he invented it so he didn't have to speak to a drunk duke and so he could still pitch him. It's a pitch deck. Uh, and we're using that to decide how people should enter the labor market. And then fundamentally, what we worked out is that there were two core problems. And it was the reason why veterans weren't getting jobs, but it's also the reason why people that are neurodivergent are finding it hard to enter the labor market, why people coming back from maternity leave or paternity leave are finding it hard to enter the labor market, or people that are in industries that, have been affected by automation and technology are finding it hard to shift jobs, as well as people leaving school are struggling to get into employment and meaningful employment and gainful employment, employment where they're utilized. And the two reasons were, one, our systems that we've built to get talent in are subjective and speculative and built off old technology. So, you know, we have systems that review resumes. People submit thousands of resumes. And we only review 1%. And what we compare them to is a job description. And if you look at a job description, it's just the last person that did the job that's now moved on versus an actual job description, i.e. you need X amount of experience, this degree, da, da, da. And the desired description is just the person that's doing it. They're lazy in what they're assessing their workforce needs. So we found that that was a big problem and people weren't entering the labor market. And the second thing we found is that the education system was over-educating and under-skilling people. So we were training a lot of computer scientists, but not a lot of software developers. And they're not the same thing. One is a trade that you can learn and can be supported by computer science. And one is a theoretical research 
degree. Uh, and what you're finding is the education system in all Western countries isn't really producing people. There's not, there's not enough of them. So no one wanted to hire me. I needed to make money there because I had none. But we had this vision of solving underemployment by beating the resume and building a new system that focused on people's potential, aptitude and skills over experience and education. We had no money. So I started to apply for sales roles at tech companies because you know, one thing I learned off my, my dad is that if you're from a rough part of town, you're not really going to be able to raise capital, right? Because banks don't want to give it to you. You don't have any assets and there's no way of you lowering risk. There's no one that can bail you out. So I ended up ringing this company that does sales and marketing for Hewlett Packard. It was about a 50-person company. And I took a role in telemarketing for $35,000 a year, doing 60 cold calls a day, selling HP servers, like servers in 2016. No one wants to buy a bloody server. And, you know, you do 60 cold calls a day, you get like 12 connections, you get maybe one presentation. And every time you qualify to lead, you'd get 50 bucks, like $50 or 25 pounds. And what ended up happening was it doesn't work. There's no way you can sell a server cold calling telemarketing. It doesn't work. So I, um, I, I stole a HP jacket from one of the people that, from Hewlett Packard that visited and one of their laptop bags. And then I just realized that 900 of the customers that I was calling were in a roughly three kilometers from my building. So I just started to go see them and pretend to be from Hewlett Packard versus try to sell through the channel, help them sell directly to their customers because they were struggling to sell it. So I started to consult. The Hewlett Packard for that year had a national target of $100 million on this particular product, and I sold $20 million in the first quarter. Uh, and then all of a sudden, they wanted to not pay me $35,000 a year. They wanted to pay me $300,000 a year, and they wanted me to run marketing. And I just said to them, I've broken all of your rules. You've insulted me out the whole quarter because I didn't turn up to work and broke all of your rules. You haven't trained me, and now you want me to be in charge. I go, nah. Uh, and it was at this point, one of my soldiers uh, attempted suicide because he couldn't get work. So the idea that we discussed a few months ago has now become very real. And I've just made a lot of money. So I'm quitting. See ya. And we're going to set up this company. and We're going to sell everything else we own. And we're going to go live in someone's garage. And we're going to try to do this thing. And that's when we started with you and me with a vision of solving underemployment. Um, and that was seven years ago. And that's a really great story to hear. Do you think there are particular attributes in a person or particular attributes of being in the army that transcend to working in tech? That's a good question. Um, So what we know and what I think are two different things. So what we know is that 67% of the people in uniform that we've tested, which is roughly now 62,000 people, British, Australian, UK, military, all that sort of the US, 67% of them have the aptitude strengths to be a software developer. And to be a great one. So that was really interesting. And we also know that we, we match to 168 digital occupations. 89% of people we test will be in the highest percentile for one of those occupations. We tested now, I think, roughly 7,000 students that are going through computer science degrees globally. And there's two things they have a standard deviation higher than. One is abstract reasoning. So the ability to connect underlying logic uh, it's called fluid intelligence. A lot of people would describe it as street smarts if you sometimes hear it in business. And that is the most sought after strength in great cloud engineers, data engineers, and cybersecurity engineers. And the reason is because when you do those things, you're relying on third-party applications, third-party data centers, legacy systems, legacy applications, and then new ones that you're building. So it actually is really complex. And every solution is creative. It's not a workflow. It's not a logical workflow. So that is the most sought after trait. Um, and veterans have it one standard deviation higher than those that are in a computer science degree. And the reason is, one, 
a lot of veterans come from poverty areas where there's obviously a need for a lot of street smarts. But two, um, they've spent the majority of their life between 18 to 21 being told to solve complex problems with little training, whereas everyone else has got the chance to go through university, get educated and and learn it theoretically first. Um, so they, they have that. The other thing that they're extraordinarily strong in is um, spatial awareness or spatial reasoning. Uh, the ability to connect 2D, 3D objects for efficiency and effectiveness. And that is the most sought after aptitude trait for a software developer. Now, the other thing we did too, which is really interesting, is we started testing people in humanities degrees versus community to science degrees. And people in humanities degrees uh, scored a standard deviation higher in abstract reasoning as well. So we've started helping art students that traditionally haven't been able to find work and don't want to be a teacher, which a lot of them do become, to be a cyber threat hunter. And they're better at it than those computer scientists. And the reason is, is one's all about systems and one's about finding people attacking you over a system. So it's about understanding the human element. And, and if you have the ability to learn how to code and you've in a humanities degree, then it's very easy for you to, to get into cyber and Excel. So we've learned a lot of those things. And if you apply that to a startup or a technology business, they're sought after roles no matter what stage. We won the Deloitte 500 for Asia Pacific by growing 13,000% in revenue in about the third year of our business. And why that's important is we beat everyone in terms of business numbers and 85% of our staff were combat veterans that had never done a business or technology job before. So you combine those aptitude strengths with the military's ability to teach you to be resilient, resourceful, be open to new experiences and look after each other. You, you'll find that they're also great hires for a young tech company, not just a mature one. Mm -hmm. I wonder what... Um how that applies to neurodiverse people. So uh, do, you, do you know if there's a higher percentage of neurodiverse people working in tech? There, there's heaps of cool stuff about people that are neurodiverse. We have the National Disability Insurance Scheme in Australia. It's called NDIS. And I think there's a, there's a huge, about 27% of people on NDIS are autistic. That's a lot of people and they want to work. It's like four out of six want to work. And they're being told they can't work or they can't find a job. So they go into NDIS. Now, I've always been different. so seeing someone based off their strengths is easy now it's very hard for the market though to look at a new talent pool so when we looked at those that are neurodivergent um, we sort of looked specifically at three key areas initially one is adhd one is dyslexic uh, and one is autistic or, or asperger's now there are, there is probably another seven different categories of neurodivergent but we've just focused on those three initially and what we found out is when we started to ask customers if they wanted to hire someone that was neurodiverse they immediately thought of the movie Rain Man. I've got a lot of data problems. I think we should hire some people that are neurodiverse to do that. And I was like, well, that's pretty narrow. And they're like, well, what do you mean? I go, do you want to see their testing results? Let's say someone that's autistic. They, they would generally be strong out of three out of the seven aptitude traits. And I mean strong, I mean really strong. And one of the things we've learned is that there are different types of people that have autism when it comes to their aptitude strengths. For example, there are the types that are really good at numerical reasoning and probability, right? So there is the Rain Man or woman. But there is also ones that are super strong on verbal reasoning and statement and comprehension. So you'll find in my company of 50 salespeople, out of the top 20 that are performing, five of them have autism. And traditionally, you would never think to hire someone that, that has autism to be a salesperson because you think they need to be doing data. No, they're extremely strong in verbal reasoning. Their ability to articulate, to storytell, to talk about a problem with a customer is astronomical. And they're all the great strengths of a good account executive or a salesperson selling enterprise software. So we found out some fundamental things that your neuro 
diversity or your neurodivergence can change your aptitude testing, but broaden the scope of the roles that you do. So for example, we found that people that have ADHD are extremely strong in product management and cybersecurity incident response. Both require focus, but both also require shifting tasks and then immediate points of focus. So we've taken those that sit under each sort of category and we've we've really blown apart based off the the homogenous aptitude strengths of those that have self-selected and really started to break down boundaries on what someone that's neurodiverse can do. And it's actually rounded across the, the spectrums of it, which is really exciting. And the other thing too is overall, people that identify as autistic score a standard deviation higher than the total population. So technically in terms of our test, that's smarter. And the other thing that we found too is that those that are autistic get through our training three times faster. Now, that could be because of their aptitude strengths or because they want a job. It, it doesn't matter. But using that model, now one quarter of my workforce of 500 people are neurodivergent. And we haven't needed to change anything about our structure other than just doing what our model does, which is pitching people based off strengths and having no bias prior to doing that. And, you know, our business just grew from 50 staff 14 months ago to, to 550 globally. We'll add another three or 400 over the next three to nine months. Yeah, that, that's really interesting and raises a lot of red flags about the way we approach neurodiverse people within society. And, you know, you mentioned earlier that you are dyslexic and you often felt when you were younger, you, you didn't fit into society. And, and do you think that was, that was a part of it? 100%. I can't perform at school because the way school teaches you is written comprehension, right? Language comprehension. And my brain's not good at that. I had a teacher called Barbara Bowe, and she made me stand behind, stay behind for two years straight for two hours every day. And I have no idea. You know, no one asked her to do this. And she made me say everything three times that I learned that day out loud because my body could take in information by saying it, not writing it down. She made me do that for two years. Um, so that then helped me understand how I can communicate with the world and take data in in a way that allows me to move faster, actually, than everyone else. Because if your speed of talk matches your speed of thought, you actually get faster than people that can that learn by writing. But I'm also a fundamental believer in, um, you know, 40,000 years ago, there was eight different types of humans. Who says there isn't that many different types now? If you're very open-minded and you believe in hiring on potential or building on potential and giving people a chance, you don't actually have to change too much of your hiring policy to attract all different types of people from all different types of background and, and let them thrive. Um, so the fundamental idea of categorizing people and putting people in a box needs to go away based off uh, lowering risk. And we need to start helping people identify what boxes they would like and let them pick and then help them take risk in doing so. And I think that's that's a much better outlook on how we let people enter the workforce and society post-entering the workforce. Yeah, definitely. You mentioned you've experienced mental health issues, especially after the time of coming out of the army. Is that something you still experience today? Very much so, yeah. Um, so last year I was diagnosed with severe depression and um, effectively my body doesn't produce enough serotonin anymore. That's got nothing to do with trauma. If you probably know, I've got a really fat head. My never used to have a really fat head. And the reason is, is my body produces absurd amounts of dopamine. And that then switches to cortisol, which then goes into fat. And eventually that happened too many times over seven years that I started to get really neurotic and wake up and my hands would be shaking and I wouldn't feel any stress, but my body's in a stressed state. And it took me a long time to understand that. And I go, eventually went and got checked and effectively I'm not, I don't have enough serotonin anymore. So 
fundamentally for me that changed the whole way I approached the mental health issue. Before, when I lost my job and my legs didn't work, I was deeply depressed, but that was traumatic. Now I'm just, you know, working hard and I'm pushing myself and the response is that my body can't handle it or it's actually handling it in a really unique way. But now I've got this other problem. I see a therapist once a week and I have things that improve my serotonin and I have to have a very strict regimen. And one thing I do in my company or in our company is everyone can see my treatment plan. And that's not done with people to feel sorry for me. I've never really ever wanted that. It's, we call it staying fierce. You know, one of our company's values is be fierce. It's a warrior value. And the reason I do that, and I also say in onboarding, is that if the CEO can be diagnosed with severe depression and it's okay and he can keep his job, hopefully that creates an environment where you can tell me if something's up and we can give you the time to sort it out or make work more flexible so it improves that state and improve mental fitness. The other thing we do too is we work in six-week cycles. Uh, every six weeks, my staff get Friday and Monday off because of how fast we're moving. So we've even taken a measured version of how our business works in order to lower burnout. Because in a startup that has a social value, you can't stop really people from burning up because they get so much dopamine from helping someone. If you take someone that's unemployed, that's neurodiverse, and all of a sudden they're now earning $100,000 a year, they feel valued in society, and you do that like 100 times, there's nothing else like it, right? So we've had to take measured stances to improve mental fitness. And I'm very open about it. And the reason I'm open about it is there's no reason not to be. I'm a high performer, I guess. I don't think I am, but by numbers I am. And I've still struggled with depression every day. And that's okay, because that's what my the brain that I've been given. That doesn't mean that I can't manage risk. That doesn't mean I can't manage global problems. That doesn't mean I can't scale the global team. And when I initially told everyone this, it was part of our be transparent value. All of our shareholders got really worried. And then about six months later, they're like, we now tell all the CEOs to tell people what's going on and how they're going and all those sort of things. Because at the end of the day, if someone invests in your company or you, you join a company, it's in the best interest of everyone if everyone's driving to help people succeed versus removing them if they're risky. And my life is sort of go hero, catastrophic failure, fool, hero, catastrophic failure, fool. And and as a startup entrepreneur, that's all it is. It's like, if you don't go into the unknown, you don't fail forward. If you don't take that risk, you never get a return. So fundamentally, you have to do that so many times that, of course, the stress level is going to increase. Yeah, I, I'm a big proponent of sharing that so people can understand that it, if the person that's leading the organization can deliver and can improve and be transparent in it without any repercussions. Hopefully they can too. And we and we can give them the time or the flexibility they need to sort out what they need to do uh, in order to keep performing and, and working with people and trusting them. Mm -hmm. And for any of our listeners, what is the power of being transparent about your mental health as a CEO? It allows me not to be the CEO. Last year, 17% of our staff had ordinary shares. Now it's 64%. By June this year, it'll be 100%. I hate being a CEO. don't like anything about it. It's not like being a warrior. You can't touch business. You can't lick it. You can't feel anything. There's no smell to it. Whereas in the army, there's a lot of things that you can touch. You, know, you probably shouldn't lick things, but there's a lot of history and there's a lot of camaraderie. And, and as a CEO, your job is to allocate people, words, and money. That's it. That's really boring to me. So the, the strength of me being transparent about everything. So everyone in our company gets our cash flow numbers, shareholder reports, everyone can see everything. Every management meeting video is sent down and you can access it if you want. It allows me to feel like I'm not in charge 
And the great thing about that is people then tell me what's going on. Like those little fundamental improvements of a product or a workflow or a staff issue, all of those things, because they know that I'm a rascal and I'm human and I fundamentally believe in what we're doing, I'll put it all out there and be vulnerable to showcase that. And I'll do it every day, no matter how easy or hard it gets. What ends up happening is that everyone realizes really quickly that you're a first-time astronaut building a space shuttle in space with a bunch of other first-time astronauts. And it's absolutely terrifying. And having imposter syndrome and absolutely terrifying is normal in a startup. And the CEO's got it. So now that we've got all that out of the way, we can actually talk about the root cause of things that's going on. And we can build a great product. We can build a great team. And we could look after our customers. Uh, So yeah, I, I think it's an absolute tool set that allows information to then start flowing through your organization and stops the organization becoming egocentric and allows it to be esoteric where they're focusing on the problem and not how they like each other or what they think about each other or who they should politicize with in order to get ahead. No, no, no. The way you get ahead here is by solving underemployment. And also it's pretty cool. Like if you have a mechanism of not being the CEO and being my other alter ego, which I've called the chief goblin, because I like to mess with people a little bit and have fun, that transparency avenue gives me credibility to shift between the two. You know, I don't have work and life. I just have life. Although it's really treacherous to do when you start and it's scary and it's still scary every time you do it, it's a fear worth taking if people can tell you what's up with your customers. Yeah, and, and has that become an important aspect of bringing your team closer together is, is that transparency, especially around mental health? Very much so. But transparency around everything. So every six, six weeks, we run a be transparent session and the company gets together and you write, who are you proud of? Who is the most fierce? Who let you down? Who did you let down? And once we get all that out of the way, we work out if there's an actual problem, like we haven't trained a skill or we're missing a process or we're not allocating resources effectively. And we took that from combat in the military where after every patrol, we would figure out what we could do better because you know you can have all this equipment, but if they're smarter than you and they move faster than you, you won't survive. Pretty intense, but you take the time to adapt to it. Uh, it can really, really help you outrun your potential. Yeah, and I, I guess it also forces everyone who works in the business to, to really be themselves and be them their genuine selves. But it takes the corporateness out of being in a particular role, which you know is so is so common. Very much, and like I have to run the thing. So I'm not here to guilt anyone. My hands are literally shaking because this is this is pretty intense. Now, if you're you're the leader of something, you've got to be completely comfortable with having a discussion in front of 500 people about what you did wrong, and that doesn't get easier. But if I can do that, and that then helps people feel safe, it then helps people ask for help. Those things can then speed up a business very quickly. I don't really want to run a business. So I've got to do this. I've got to solve unemployment pretty quickly. I, I want to go make movies. I don't sort of want to sit here forever building software. And um, what does the future hold for with you and with me? Uh, the company has a 30-year vision to get the labor market from a resources market to a asset market. We want everyone, no matter what stage of their journey, to be able to be assessed off their potential aptitude skills over education, experience, or who they know. We reckon it'll take about 30 years to remove the resume. There's a few things that we've got to do. One is create a great product because we're doing something very disruptive. So if it provides a hundred times improvement and it's nice to use and it feels good to use, then that's what we have to do. 
We don't want anyone else to use boring German HR software anymore that just looks like a spreadsheet. It's it's terrible. What do we keep doing this for? We can order a Big Mac on Uber Eats in like three minutes. You know, this process of applying for a job and valuing people on a spreadsheet, why is that still a thing? We need to get over that. So that's the first thing we need to do. Two, um, we need to create, a, uh, I guess, a culture where people can outrun their potential. So that means that we want our business uh, or our staff to own shares in our business, ordinary shares, not preference shares. And then last but not least, um, we have to keep doing things for free. Everyone that's in an unemployed or underemployed group of veteran that's neurodivergent or a refugee can access our training for free and our testing for free. And that creates a marketplace. Um, and by doing that, more people buy our software and every software license that we sell to, a, say, a company to access that pool, we can train 10 more people for free. And that software license is an annuity business model. So that means I can just keep training these people for free forever. So we keep focusing on social impact. We create a great product and we help our teams outrun their potential and outrun it, not reach it. I think we could remove the resume in 30 years and fundamentally change the way we look at people in the labor market. And hopefully we can look at them as an asset, not a commodity anymore that should be traded. Mm-hmm. On a personal note, you mentioned making movies. Is that is that something that you might be getting into? Oh, yeah. I'm never going to sell any shares in with you with me. I have 14 T-shirts, a $600 car, and still live on people's couches. So I don't, the army has taught me that a double McChicken burger is a way that's nice for me. So I... Uh, for me, I'll never sell any shares in with you with me, but I can't be a CEO forever. I'm a big believer in potential. So that means another CEO needs to take over our business, probably in the next two years, actually. My job is to get the business to 50,000 people getting trained for free a year and 10,000 people getting a job. It's about a quarter of the way there now. And that means the business will probably be worth more than a billion dollars US. So that's all I need to do. And then, yeah, I fundamentally want to make movies because although I like Marvel movies, we need to be making all different types and telling all different types of stories. And I don't think we are yet. And I can't be a warrior anymore. So I seem to like movies. So why don't I do that? Uh, and then I don't have to manage as many people and, and build as many things. And I can have a bit of fun for once after about you know 15 years of pain and working hard. So uh, that's what I'd like to do. When can we expect you to release your first film? I've already pitched it. It's called First Lad. It's about a, an Australian self-made billionaire being married to a female president of the United States, and he constantly gets into hijinks with geopolitics, but at the end of the day, he always seems to save the day, and, and his wife always seems to sort him out. And we pitched it, a, I think it was about six months ago, and it was very well received by a very large streaming firm. So hopefully soon. Yeah, that sounds close to home. <laughs> That's great. Um, we have a few last couple of questions. So one of them is is a part of a feature which we call Answer the Internet. Uh, this is where we scour the internet for the questions that the public needs answers to. And the question that we have for you today is why does it matter if you are or were a veteran when applying for certain jobs? Um, probably why there's some jobs that are veteran only is because they want to hire more veterans. But the only thing that I would say that every veteran has is that they've been a citizen first, uh, which is I'm going to go do something. I'm not going to get many benefits from it. I don't really know what it entails. And I'm signing my life away to do it because you can't leave. If you don't like it on day one, you're not allowed to leave for like four years. So for me, it's you've written a check uh, to be a citizen without knowing any understanding of what that means or its responsibilities. And I think there's something that's very powerful about that. And that's why I think it, it does matter when people are looking to hire them. Do you think there's still a misconception or 
stereotypes that exist around war veterans. Yeah, I, I, I think society doesn't like people that are dangerous. Okay, so a veteran's job is to be a warrior. A warrior makes war. It's a profession. Thank God if you never have to do it. Most of us are sign up because we want to protect people or go on an adventure. We don't sign up because we want to make destruction of war. And I think the underlying problem with veterans is, you know, a lot, everyone's really positive receives a World War II veteran or a, you know, a much older type person that was ex-military with a lot of medals. It's okay to look at an old person and go, you once were dangerous, but now, you know, you're, you're soft and cuddly and I want to help open the door for you and how, how jolly you were. But the real answer is probably at my age, they were probably exactly the same. They were probably still wanting to get into fights. They were probably still looking for things that they could break. They were probably still looking for bigger reasons to protect people. And for the first time sort of in history, we've got a real focus that Western society has gotten a lot safer. And that's a great thing. But there still is a need, as you've probably seen with Ukraine recently, to have warriors. And warriors are dangerous people when we select the right ones, that they are monsters and we give them skills, but hopefully they act fortuitously. So I actually think the real challenge is um, that modern society can't accept dangerous people that act fortuitously. They accept villains that are dangerous and movies that they see that all the time. But the idea that a young 24 year old man or woman is dangerous as in they're a warrior and they're fortuitous, people can't process that. So uh, it then becomes misconceived about most veterans are old when no, we have a lot of war veterans and they were dangerous and they are dangerous, but you don't see them walking around the street and doing all these bad things. Like they're not taking those skills that they learn and creating a private army and doing, you know, and becoming criminals. So, you know, there's a very low percentage of people that do that. Um, so for me, I think um, the real challenge for society in appreciating younger veterans is appreciating that society needs people to do dangerous things in order to protect it. Our final question to you is whether you have any final, final words for our audience. I would say um, if you're looking to create a disruptive social business that wants to solve injustice, you've got to be okay with being dangerous and acting fortuitously because there's a lot of bullies running those systems. So my one word of advice is that be responsible, be dangerous and act fortuitously and take some of these unjust problems on. You gotta be ready to figure what you're getting into because people don't like to lose money in the short term for a long-term gain. But I would really, really like to see more young men and women be responsible for changing these problems versus just raising awareness and take the injustice on. Uh, and you know, if you ever need veterans, we got heaps of warrior technologists that are always looking for a great place to help you have that fight. And that was the one thing that we were good at before we left.